You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. Welcome to a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm your host, Pete Mecca. My very special guest today is Betty Wester Bishop, a real Rosie the Riveter from World War II. But to start the program, we have Carol Kane with us, entertainer and Rosie the Riveter personality, who will sing her Rosie the Riveter song to honor our guest today. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. It's a joy to be here to share the day with you and Betty and to honor all the Rosies across our country. Thank you, ma'am. While other girls attend the other cocktail bars, sipping dry martinis, munching caviar, there's a girl who's really putting them to shame. Rosie is her name. All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, (laughs) the riveter, keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage. Sitting up there on the fuselage, that little frail can do more than a male can do. Rosie, the Riveter. Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie. Charlie, he's a Marine. Rosie is protecting Charlie, working overtime on the riveting machine. When they gave her a production E, she was as proud as a girl could be. There's something true about red, white, and blue about Rosie. The Riveter. (laughs) Outstanding, Carol. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome Betty Webster Bishop, an American patriot and Rosie the Riveter in World War II. Betty, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Betty, first of all, let's uh, tell the folks, where were you born and raised, and what year were you born? Uh, I was born in Hamilton, West Virginia, August 10, 1925. Um, I just lived there for nine years. Uh, moved to the woods in Shaw, West Virginia, and then to Pennsylvania. Then to Pennsylvania, Okay. Tell us a little about what you told me was your hillbilly days in the sticks My hillbilly. in the house that you lived in. Yeah. The hillbilly days? Yes, ma'am. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about that. Well, um, our shanty was a 50-foot-long shanty straight through. We could roller skate from one end to the other and had water fights on top of the roof. And... Um, yeah, it was a great place to live. I mean, uh, the most freedom we ever had. <laughs> yeah, uh, your your mom, you told me about your mom's favorite rock. Tell us about that rock. Oh, uh, it wasn't directly behind our shanty. Uh, we had to cross a little um, creek to get up on the side, kind of a side hill, and she discovered this rock 
Uh, I'm assuming, of course, my memory's not that great, but uh, I'm assuming it was about six or seven feet above ground. And uh, it had all, we called it hieroglyphics. I don't know. It was all kinds of uh, indentations. And uh, my brother and I called it the Indian Rock, but later called it the Mom's Rock. But we would climb on it and have all kinds of uh, imagination. And uh, um, it was a fantastic rock. And uh, as um, I had stated at one time, it uh, was eventually uh, excavated and uh, moved to the Jennings Randolph uh, Lake after our little town was destroyed by water. Yeah, they flooded the area to form that lake, but they saved your mom's rock, right? Yes. Uh-huh. But, right. Uh, and, yeah. and tell us Pardon about, me? you were living by the railroad tracks. Uh, tell us about your father's railroad employment and your brother's Model T, what they, what your father did, and then tell us about your brother's Model T. What did Grandpa do? Uh, my dad, um, I was a lumberman from uh, the early 1900s, and um, he uh, drove a locomotive, the steam engine, um, that was number four way back in the early 1900s. And then um, later, uh, when we moved to the sticks, um, he uh, drove a, a steam log loader as well as a steam engine. And uh, that seemed to be his calling until much later in life. That uh, railroad engine you're talking about, Old number four was built in 1913, and I no. believe it's still in service, right? As far as I know, I know um, different people have said they had um, a ride on it in the last few years, so evidently it's still in service. Yeah, I, I researched it, and up in Cass, West Virginia, uh, it's right. still running as a uh, like a tour or a scenic route. That is amazing. And, and what right. was amazing, yeah, what was amazing also was your brother and what he did with the Model T. Tell me about that. Uh, my brother, um, he, he uh, was always active, but he happened to see an old Model T in the junk pile, and um, he wanted it. And $5 back then was a big amount of money, but... Um, he managed to make a deal with the, the guy that owned it for $5 to work it off. And somehow he managed to find wheels that would fit on the rails. And he proceeded to build what he called the Hoover you know, Lightning Express. And um, uh, he got the engine running, and it worked fine. And uh, he put it on the tracks. And I was only invited because I could sit on the back and as uh, we approached little inclines um, I could put the sand on the, on the rail so it would go up but it was quite a, quite a thing and uh, of course it was very popular with the kids in town so I think he made a few pennies on giving them rides at times too I would have loved to see a Model T Ford running down the railroad tracks. That that must have been some sight. Oh, yeah. 
very much. It was a okay. different kind of life, that's for sure. I'm we know, sure it lived, was, ma'am. Uh, we lived oh, yeah. near the, the tracks, and um, there was um, a mountain in front of us, the railroad tracks, our shanty, the creek, and another mountain. And that's, that, we were very well enclosed and taken care of. All right, very good. And uh, you grew up during the Depression, and you mentioned yes. about your mom. Yeah, your mama's pancakes. Tell us about the Depression and your mama's pancakes. Well, that was when we lived in Hamilton. Um, uh, my dad couldn't get a job anywhere, and um, uh, she did do some paper hanging. But uh, we seem to have survived on uh, flour pancakes with just flour and water. And um, uh, we were allowed to pick up the uh, apples that had fallen in the orchard, so she made apple butter from that. So we had our apple butter and pancakes survived. None of us uh, seemed to have suffered from it. And she also <laughs> shared with anybody that came by. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, maybe the bums or maybe the hobos that were riding the rail, that they would come by, and your mother would all, oh, yeah. all would share the food with them. Oh, yeah. I was just telling Rim that uh, I think that on the uh, fence post, they had a, a mark where they could find something to eat. And um, uh, I think that was discovered by my mom, but she never turned anybody away. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. And you were telling me how uh, oranges, uh, any kind of fruit or vegetable, would be a special treat. But how did you get a hold of oranges? Well, um, my sister, when we lived in Hamilton, uh, she was working her way. She was determined to go to college. Um, she worked at a sanitarium in Fairmont, West Virginia. And um, when she would come home, uh, she would bring oranges to us, and that was a huge treat for us. And to this day, that was one of my favorite things. So um, that was that, that was a big plus for us. Okay. And when did you move to uh, Pennsylvania? Uh, we moved to Pennsylvania when I was uh, 13 at the podium, so I'd have to figure that. You'll have to figure it out. But anyway. About um, nine, maybe 1938, <laughs> somewhere around there? <laughs> yeah, it would have been. And, uh, yes, we moved up there because uh, my mom was worried about us not uh, being um, associated with the outside world enough living in Shaw, so she wanted to expand our education, I guess. So she sent us to the big town of Kitty Ute, Pennsylvania. I think there's about 500 people there, so um, <laughs> we got our education. <laughs> That's where I went to high school. Uh, 500 people, that means you didn't get away with much as a teenager, right? Pardon me? Didn't get a month to live as much as a <laughs> No, no, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, tell us about December 7th, 1941, when you heard about Pearl Harbor being bombed. Well, yeah, uh, it's like I said, um, it, it was a shock. We knew about uh, I don't. It didn't have a great impact on us as teenagers. Um, until much later when the boys started leaving because we figured 
that's way on the other side of the world. That doesn't have anything to do with us until it only dawned on us that really did. So uh, as far as the immediate impact, there wasn't any great uh, impact on us. Of course, uh, it was mentioned in school and explained to us and all that, but um, it took a while for it to really settle in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a town of 500 people, I can imagine uh, Pearl Harbor way out there in the Pacific Ocean was a little bit too far for y'all to comprehend as young kids, but... What year did you graduate from high school? What year did you graduate? Uh, I graduated in uh, 43. June of 1943. Okay, and that's when that's when the war struck home because the boys started going off to war, right? Yes. In fact, uh, most everybody was, of course, they, uh, my age group are all uh, eligible to go. And uh, that's when we really saw them going. And of course, that's um, when I I left as soon as I turned eighteen to to go to Niagara Falls to build aircraft too in '43. All right, now we are going to our first break, uh, folks. Stay with us. Uh, we'll come back and talk to Betty a little bit more about her uh, work as a Rosie the Rifter in World War II. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we are back with Betty Webster Bishop, a Rosie the Rifter in World War II. Uh, Betty, you mentioned when you graduated from high school in 1943, that's when they started getting the boys uh, to go to war. You told me a story about the first boy to sign up. Tell me a little bit about that boy that signed, was the first to sign up. Raymond, the first boy to sign up. I'm Betty. I am here. Yes. Huh? He wants to know about. He wants to know about the first boy. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the first one was um, the boy that originally had a heart problem, and he evidently overcame it. And he also was the first one to be killed. Wow! Wow! And for a small town like that, that must have really struck home. 
Okay, so in 1943, you graduated from uh, high school, and you decided to go up to Niagara Falls for a job with with what company? Uh, Everybody uh, else had already gone up, a man that was going to work. Um, I don't recall even thinking of any place else to go because uh, my girlfriend was already there, and she had a room for us, and you know. Um, just naturally went there. Okay. Uh, what company did you work for? Uh, Bell Aircraft. Bell Aircraft. Okay. Uh, did you start right away, or did you have to go into a uh, training program? How did it, how did it work? How did you start your job? Uh, well, of course, we applied, they accepted, and uh, we went to a couple weeks training to learn what everything was about in general, and then um, they uh, put me on uh, uh, the uh, line to start start me, which I wasn't too great at, but anyway, it was a start. <laughs> okay, you started work on the P-39 fighter. Uh, what did yeah, you do? Uh, what did you do on the P-39, and why do you say you did a lousy job? <laughs> well, the main thing that was doing a belly cow, where you have to uh, file them to fit, and then um, you have to pound them to round them out to um, have a curve that fits snugly to the belly. And uh, I just either took too much off or... Um, leave wrinkles in it or whatever, but I just wasn't any good. I also did belly, uh, did uh, the ballast on the uh, P-39s too, but um, they gave up on me and transferred me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what what explain the ballast on the P-39 fighter? What did that do? What was it for? Uh, it was like squares. Uh, um, as I recall now, um, like I said, um. Can't be too specific, but um, it was like squares of lead, and uh, they fit in the uh, nose to balance the tail or something. I don't know, but uh, that's um, there was just a little space up there that you added until everything balanced out. Okay, all right. So you got a transfer. I mean, uh, they sent you over to do work on the newest of the Bell aircraft. That was the P-63 King Cobra, which was an outstanding aircraft. Now, what did you do on the P-63 King Cobras? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, my main job uh, was to synchronize uh, landing gear. Uh, uh, I had a little, little hole in the top that only my hand could fit in. The men couldn't. That's the reason they kept me, I think. But anyway, uh, we put those uh, chips down in there until, um, uh, and then keep uh, checking, you know, uh, if they would come coordinated as they came down. And um, that was my main job. And then, of course, uh, filling the tires with air, making sure that was okay. And I also uh, did the oxygen lines, filled, uh, made sure the oxygen was lines were full, and I bled the brakes to make sure the brakes worked. That was my three things on uh, 63 that I did. But the main thing was the um, uh, wheels that I 
had to make sure they were coordinated. The landing gear, were you the only woman in on the team? Were you the only woman on the team? Yes, I was. There was 27 guys and me. Yeah. That worked out pretty good because a lot of times I say, get out of the way, we'll do it. So, so that worked out. It worked out pretty well. Okay, so 27 guys and you uh, would work on one King Cobra at a time. Is that correct? One plane at a time. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was near the end. Uh, it, was, it was close to pre-flight because everything else was done, and it was near uh, going out to pre-flight. So uh, that uh, kind of finished it up. Okay, very good. I uh, did a little research on the P-39s and the P-63s. Uh, most of them were sent to Russia because they were good Correct. ground support aircraft, and the Russians really liked them. But I want you to tell us about the day the Russians came and paid y'all a visit. <laughs> Well, that was a big deal because um, they came in groups of three, and of course the, um, all of um, the girls were uh, on the alert because they were snappy dressers and uh, uh, they're very pleasant. And um, I got the autographs of a couple, but uh, they got lost over the years. But uh, um, they made it, took a tour of uh, the plant and just to see. Uh, how they were made and what they uh, were buying and so on. So uh, it was interesting. Did the Russians have much of an input in the production? I mean, would they ask for changes and things like that? Did the Russians have any input in? Uh, no, I, I don't recall any. Uh, there was uh, anything they did. All we saw was, was just that they walked through, you know, and saw them and waved and so on. So well, that I don't know what. Yeah, you said they were sharp dressers. That's surprising. A lot of people <laughs> don't put uh, uh, sharp dressers and Russians in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> but very uh, important. What? <laughs> Eighteen-year-old eight, girls notice things like that, right? Oh yes, we did. Uh, we did. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you remember? Did, uh, go ahead, Parker. <laughs> go ahead. No, I was going to say. Um, I mentioned that uh, when I worked on the uh, uh, struts and the, and the uh, landing gear and so on. That was uh, just pre-flight, and I did eventually work on pre-flight. Um, uh, the winding down of the war, um, they transferred me out to pre-flight, but we weren't building anything there. We just um, were making um, target planes, uh, and uh, um, there were no no more sales at that time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you remember your starting wage when you first started? No, I was trying to think of that, and I was telling Rima that uh, it must have been around thirty dollars, um, as I recall. It seemed like twenty-eight, thirty in that area. Um, I was saying thirty to forty, but it wasn't that much. Um, I, I don't recall. I know I used it all up each week, each, anyway. So <laughs> whatever it was. Did, did you? Uh, do you remember getting any pay raises? You get any pay raises while you're there? 
I don't think so. I don't think I was worth it. <laughs> okay. Now, your future husband was uh, overseas in the war in Europe. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that was before I met him, but he was he was uh, served with uh, Patton. Yeah. Patton. Okay, George Patton. What did your husband do in in, uh, in the war? Um, he, uh, I think it was tank, t- tank and half tracks, as I recall, and uh, then yeah, and then uh, when he came home, he. Um, Joined the Seabees um, uh, and retired from Seabees. Oh, okay. Uh, I do remember that you mentioned uh, your husband did not talk about the war too much, but he did receive two Purple Hearts. He was wounded twice in the war. Is that correct? Yes, uh, uh, he did. And um, oh, we never received them because they had told us that. Uh, there was a fire that destroyed that particular building in New Orleans or something, but um, he was eligible. Wow. Wow. I know that uh, also he landed on D-Day plus one. He landed one day after June 6, 1944, and he fought all the way across Europe, including the Battle of the Bulge with George Patton. Is that correct? Right. He was involved in both of those skirmishes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, Betty, you eventually left there because the war was winding down, and you decided to go help your sister, who was pregnant at the time, down in Florida. Tell us that story. Yeah, um, she, uh, her husband had uh, gone overseas, and uh, uh, she was dragging a trailer across from Texas to Florida, and she had one little girl and was pregnant. So my mom and I decided we should come down with her, and um, knowing that I would be laid off before long um, due to the war winding down. Uh, we came to Florida to be with her, and uh, been here off and on ever since. Okay. Tell us a little bit about her husband. He also worked for George Patton, and what did her yeah, husband do, and what happened? Uh, he worked directly with uh, in, in uh, contact with Patton, and um, uh, he, he flew uh, small planes, uh, he was a, like a liaison officer, and um, he uh, flew the different dispatches and whatever, whatever was needed. But uh, when the war ended, he was uh, due to come home, and Patton asked him personally if he would stay and help him clean up after the war. And uh, Max, who was my brother-in-law, um, said, okay, because he figured it wouldn't take that long anyway with them working. As it turned out, um, General Patton died, I think it was about a week before uh, Max, and Max was on the way uh, to Austria with uh, uh, 
papers. Um, of course, I wouldn't know what, but anyway, it was pretty important papers. And he was flying, and he crashed into the Alps, and uh, his body wasn't discovered. That was in um, December, and his body wasn't discovered till the following July. But uh, he was; they were able to send his body home. So, so he and Patton both uh, <laughs> gave their lives after the war. Yeah, uh, I think the aircraft that your brother-in-law flew for Patton was a Piper uh, aircraft called the Grasshopper. It was used for courier work and also as a spotter plane. And I don't think the people realize that when he crashed into the Alps, that was in December of 1945, and when they recovered his body... It was in July of 1946 before they could get to it. But tell us a little bit about what they found about his body. Well, uh, as I understand it, they said his body was perfectly preserved. There was no problem in identifying uh, identifying him or, or anything. But uh, as far as um, the plane and anything else was concerned, I had never heard any description at all. Yeah. Well, it was called because of the cold weather in the Alps that his body was perfectly preserved. Um, yeah. uh, that had to be tragic news uh, for your sister. Uh, Very much so. She yeah. had two little ones left. Wow. <laughs> Did you have any other relatives in the war? Uh, my brother. My brother was uh, an MP in uh, Germany. Oh, all during the war. And uh, he was able to... Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. We're going to our second break. We'll be right back with uh, Betty Webster Bishop, Rosie the Riveter from World War II. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, welcome back, folks. We're talking to uh, Betty Webster, Webster Bishop. She was a Rosie the Rifter in World War II. She worked on the uh, fighters, the P, the Bell P thirty nine, and the P sixty three King Cobra. Uh, 
Betty, uh, we were discussing uh, the P-36. You had a P-36 fighter named after you over on, on Falcon Field in Peachtree City. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, the, the the P-63? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure I understood your question. Uh, you had a P-63 fighter named after you over at oh, Falcon okay. Field in Peachtree City. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, that was a big surprise. That was a big deal, believe me. Um, yeah, I was introduced to uh, the fact that, uh, they were working on the, the uh, P-63 by my son in... Uh, I think it was 2014, um, because he had remembered that I had worked on it, and he he lives in that area. So he uh, uh, saw them talking about restoring the 63. And anyway, um, I've been in touch with them, been back and forth, and they've been fantastic, the CAF group there. But this... Um, uh, I jokingly told them one time if they wanted to take uh, the word text off of the... The um, P-63, I knew a name they could put on it, and never even thinking that they might do that. But I got the surprise of my life when they told me they were dedicating the plane and naming it for me in my honor. So that was a fantastic thing for an old lady to uh, enjoy. Okay, the the CAF, that's the Commemorative Air Force uh, down at Falcon Field in Peachtree City. They have a lot of restored airplanes and uh, that are still flying, by the way. And so there's a P-63 there named, uh, is it Betty Bishop or is it just named Betty? No, Miss Betty. Miss Betty. Mm-hmm. Miss Betty's on the nose. All right, and it took them, yeah, it took them 16 years to restore that aircraft. Is that right? Right, right. Uh, I do have my autograph underneath it that they said they never would uh, paint over, so that's another big honor. So I fly with it wherever it goes. Uh, oh, that's great. That is wonderful. Did, uh, when you were on the production line, did you ever get to sit in the cockpit? Oh, yeah. I'd sit up there and uh, take lots of time just uh, relaxing. I never took a nap, but um, <laughs> I um, I took plenty of time just just sitting in there. And we used to st- uh, stick our uh, name and address in the uh, windshield, too, sometimes. And uh, I did get one answer back one time. So, um <laughs> But as far as flying it, uh, it was only a one-seater, so there was never any chance of that. They offered you a trip on one, but you'd have to fly it, right? They offered you a trip, but you'd have to fly it. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid that would be, uh, be a, a positive. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. But I did have to sit in the cockpit to um, check the, um, uh, the the dials and the uh, uh, like with the oxygen and the brakes to make sure cause, to read those. And so I had an excuse to be in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And so you would put your name and number on notes and leave them in the cockpit. Hopefully uh, uh, maybe a pilot would give you a call or something like that, right? Yep, I did that. We'd sneak okay. it in and make it as small as we could so it would pass inspection, but I got one answer <laughs> back. All right. Well, I told you when I saw one of your World War II uh, photos, you were, I said, man, you were hot to trot back then. And what was your response to that? <laughs> yeah, my, my mind is, but my body's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what is your overall feeling about being a Rose of the Riveter? The what? What's your overall impression of being a Rosie? Oh, uh, being a Rosie? Yeah, being a Rosie. Yes, ma'am. Well, I, I never thought about it, to tell you the truth. I, I never even thought about working at Bell until this came up. And it was, I don't even recall discussing it much. Um, and I didn't realize uh, the importance uh, of what we were doing either until many years later. Uh, but um, uh, as it turned out, I'm very proud to be one of the original Rosies. It's very, it's a big honor. It's something I don't uh, understand <laughs> why we are um, applauded as much as we are, but I appreciate it. Well, you had a very valuable job in World War II. Now, did they ever come by and give you, like, pep talks or anything like that? Have you ever had any pep talks or anything? Anyone? Any pep talks? Oh, yeah. Um, we had a lot of movie stars that uh, came by. Uh, um, we had a catwalk up, up above all of us. And uh, there was, I was trying to remember some of them that came, but um, uh, I just, I really don't remember. Evidently, I wasn't very impressed, but. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, there was, um, I remember there was two or three different uh, movie stars that came up and gave us a little pep talk and thanked us and so on. But, did, uh, did that, uh, did these pep, did they, the pep talks or the motivational speeches, did they help you understand your importance to the war effort? Um, not at the time. Uh, but, you know, as you get older, you, you uh, go over these things, and you remember things, and you think, boy, that was pretty great, and um, I, I should have appreciated this more years ago and so on. But uh, at the time, we were, we were all about ourselves, pretty much, and uh, didn't, didn't take things, things as seriously as we should have. But we did get, uh, after we were there a while, we did realize it was important, and I'm glad we did that anyway. And uh, uh, we appreciated any kind words we got. So just a normal teenage group, and that uh, was mostly teenagers in early 20s that so was uh, working there. And it was mostly teenagers that fought the war, so you did your job. Yeah. And these were the ones that were rejected, and also the older ones that were past the draft age were a lot of those. So, uh, I think Bell, uh, Bell Aircraft Corporation was one of the first corporations to build a helicopter. Did you see any of the helicopters? 
Uh, yes, we were allowed in. We had passed to go in, and uh, we were allowed to see them, but we didn't have anything to do with them. They were in a different area. But, uh, um, it was uh, they were quite interesting, and uh, they did um, show us how they worked and so on. But that was the extent of our um, relationship with helicopters. Did you see one fly? Um, I'm not sure. Probably did, but like I said, so many things back there didn't mean that much that, that yeah. would have later. Well, the, 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 I saw a photo of that helicopter, and they were pretty ugly, weren't they? <laughs> huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were, so those helicopters were one of the first, and they were very sparsely built and also uh, very ugly, but... Um, now, you also saw one of America's first jet fighters. Tell us about the time <laughs> you saw the jet fighter. <laughs> oh, that was a fun time. Uh, yeah, it was out on the, the tarmac, and, um, of course, it was surrounded. Um, and uh, uh, I did have a pass, so we were went out to check it out, and then they wanted to show us how it worked. and. <laughs> One big blast about blew us across from the airport, but um, uh, it was just a matter of being allowed to uh, check it out. That's all that I had to do with that. Was it heavily guarded? Uh, yes, it was, very heavily. Uh, but it, it was quite a machine. Yeah, that was the Bell P-59 era Comet. That was one of America's yeah. first jet fighters it never got into action but uh evidently yeah you you said you were impressed by the big air intake ducts uh, it, i guess it was strange that you worked on uh, oh yeah planes. <laughs> you worked on prop planes and then saw an airplane without a propeller that had to be a little bit strange uh, i'm sorry i didn't i didn't hear that <laughs> Well, that's okay. And you also <laughs> saw you saw a lot of ladies flying airplanes. Tell us about the ladies flying the airplanes. Uh, ladies? Yes, ma'am. I really don't recall uh, them flying them. Of course, um, there was a lot working on them. But I almost think oh, we didn't um, see that many planes flying, actually. Um, in fact, I don't know if I recall even seeing one of our planes in the air. Um, really? All of our work on the ground. Yeah. So that was a different, you know, a different area. Of course, it was a big um, airport, big concern. So, uh, but, uh, and I worked inside, so I probably wouldn't have seen them anyway. Now, did the... Uh Army pilots come and get the airplanes, or did the Bell test pilots take the airplane somewhere? How did that work? How did the planes get delivered? Well, that I don't know, but um, there was so so much in the other side of the airport that uh, we weren't aware of. You know what was going on over there. But um, I honestly couldn't tell you how they were delivered. I imagine they had to fly somewhere. But, 
Yeah, a lot of the ladies. Uh, yeah, the ladies in the, in the ladies Air Force were flying a lot of those planes too. But okay, Betty, we are going to our last break. Folks, we'll be uh, right back with Betty Webster Bishop, Rose of the Rifter, in World War II. Stay with us. Whether cruising the strip at a '57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. And this Saturday we are going to be talking Model A's with Mr. Tuesdale. Uh, tune in at 8 o'clock this Saturday on America's Web Radio. It will be a great show with Mr. Tuesdale talking Model A's. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to the Doctor's Lounge where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, thank you, David. All right, folks, we're back with uh, World War II Rosie the Riveter, Betty West, uh, Webster Bishop. Uh, Betty, I want to ask you something about the production lines when you're working on the fighter airplanes. What was the supervision like? Was it good supervision, or was there any kind of fantastic uh, type situation or was everybody working together uh as the supervisors i was very um they were very much involved um in fact you didn't even know you you had a boss everybody worked and um i don't recall anybody uh complaining about anything or correcting you or anything like that but you could go to them if you needed help and things like that so you really worked as a team. Worked as a team, right? Oh, yeah, pretty much so. Okay. Well, you know, T-E-A-M spells team, and that does mean together everybody accomplishes more. Uh, and, and I know that during the World War II, everybody did accomplish more for the good of the country. Uh, tell us what some of the no-nos were. What were some of the rules that you could not break? Some of the rules that they had. Oh boy! Uh, well, one of them was you had to wear a, a kerchief in your hair. It didn't matter whether it was long, short, or what. Uh, that was a, a must, and you had to wear your bell uniform. And um, you're pretty strict about uh, the tool crib that you you borrowed from the tool crib. You returned to the tool crib. Mm-hmm. Or you had to pay for the tools, oh. but um, um, it was pretty lax. I mean, um, rules were easily followed. Did did uh, I know back then smoking was big? Were you allowed to smoke while you working on the production line? I don't think they did. I never smoked, but I was popular when the cigarettes were available. <laughs> um, that, no, no, nobody could smoke, but they could go. They had we had breaks that they could go to the ready room and uh, have okay. their smoke, and coffee, whatever. Okay, uh, you speak about the ready room. I saw uh, one photo of uh, 
all the workers at the Bell plant were in the lunchroom having lunch. What was the food like in your chow hall? I don't know, remember too much because I never could afford it. And, oh. um, <laughs> uh, they had a good variety. They really did. And uh, on payday, we uh, we really enjoyed. You could get just about anything you could at a cafeteria, and, and it was pretty much available. But uh, my friend and I did most of our eating out of the corner store, <laughs> whatever we could oh, grab. Really? Okay. <laughs> I, 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 for some reason, I, I, I guess I should have thought this through. For some reason, I thought maybe you got your food free uh, from the Bell no. Company, but you guys had to pay for it, huh? Oh, yes. Yep. Yes, you paid for <laughs> Okay. All right. Very good. Did you, uh, I, I know this is a little bit personal, but I'm going to ask anyway. Did you date uh, while you were up there? Did you have many dates? <laughs> Oh boy, that's not a nice question. Your son's sitting right here. Yeah, my son's sitting right here. But anyway, yes, I did a lot of babies. I found somebody very soon after I was up there, probably within a couple of weeks. And the weird thing was his name was Buck, and I married a Buck. So. Unless they had some significance. <laughs> yep. Um, and not only that, uh, Fort Niagara was right next door, so there was plenty of soldiers available. So um, we weren't. <laughs> it was, it was I, a spread your range. <laughs> I wonder, Betty, uh, I know there was a lot of dating, things like that, but what kind of hours did you work? What were your hours? Your hours? Oh, uh, four thirty to twelve thirty in the swing shift. Swing shift. Okay. Did the production line <laughs> run twenty four hours a day? Right. And after uh, we got off during the winter, we'd go to the uh, the park. We didn't live far from the falls, and uh, we'd go down there. We'd build forts and uh, forts and have. Uh, uh, snowball fights and still until three or four o'clock in the morning. And, <laughs> and it was great life. Did you ever have to work the weekends? Was this seven days a week or five days a week? No, it never varied. I never, we never worked overtime and we never, I never worked a weekend. Wow. Okay. All right. Very good. And now, how close were you to the Bell plant? Did you have to uh, walk or take a bus? How did you get to work? Uh, I took a bus. We caught a bus on the corner. and um, uh, I was trying to think how far I was. Of course, in my mind, everything is a lot farther than it really is, so I would hesitate to hazard a guess, but uh, uh, I would say maybe five, seven, maybe even more. I don't know. Okay. Uh, All right. Do you recall how much your rent was back then? Your rent? How much did you pay for rent? My rent? My rent? Yes, um, ma'am. Well, I shared a room with my girlfriend, and I think we paid like uh, $12 every two weeks, something like that. We $12 paid. every two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <amazing>. So, <laughs> I think the rate's going about $12 an hour now. <laughs> okay. Uh, Betty, give me some of your uh, 
give me some of your final thoughts about, my goodness, you've been uh, uh, around for a lot of years. You've seen a lot of changes. What was your impression of America during World War II? What was America like during World War II versus what you see and witness today about our country? Oh, there's no comparison. I mean, everybody worked together. I don't recall anybody uh, having any um, thing against anybody. I mean, everybody knew what they uh, what they were working for, but what the outcome they were hoping for. And um, I honestly don't recall any fussing, any arguing, or. Um, Anybody trying to put down what somebody else is trying to do, I really don't recall it. We just all did what we were supposed to, as we were supposed to, and enjoyed life during the difficult times. Yeah. Well, the greatest generation, we'll never see the likes of the greatest generation again. Everything's changing too much. Um, how many presidents have you lived through? Many what? How many presidents? Um, 16. I don't count the 17th one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, yeah. I know you still I know you still love this country. You're still a patriot. Tell me a little Terrible. bit about your feelings about what's going on in America right now. I wouldn't dare on air. <laughs> um, no. No, I, I, it's just so sad, the whole thing. It's just so uncalled for and so so sad what they're trying to do to us. And it's, um, um, it's hard to take in and it's hard to accept. And I think that's part of my problem growing old. So um, I don't even know what to say about it because uh, it just goes beyond my thoughts of what could ever have happened to us. And it's... Uh, it's hard hard to accept. Well, I haven't accepted it, let's face it. Um, very good. But, very, very well stated. Thank you very much for that. I know that your attitude toward the presidency changed during the Trump administration. Tell me why. Your attitude toward the presidency changed during the Trump administration. During the Trump administration. Well, we all know it's fake, and I can't, I mean, I don't even know what I'm allowed to say, but... Um, you say whatever um, you want, ma'am. You've earned it. Uh, it's just been such a fiasco from the very, you know, since they started on Trump when they first got in. It's just been nothing but uh, underhanded fake stuff, and uh, it's hard to accept because having known... Um, happier times, you know, like we said, with all the uh, presidents that have come in, we haven't agreed with all of them, but we, um, they are presidents, and we went along with them. We, I don't recall all this crap about having to, uh, being against them, picking on every little thing, and it's just, it's just so out of hand that it's hard to, it's hard to put into words, really. I understand what you're saying about, you know, you've lived through uh, 16 presidents. Uh, Biden is the 17th. But I remember a time when even if you didn't agree with the president that was elected, 
you always knew that he was an American, and in the end, they would put America first, and they would be a commander-in-chief, and at least they would try to do what's right. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, we respected the office and respected the the um, um, situation that uh, brought them in, and the fact that uh, um, the majority put them there. And I mean, um, it was just easy to accept things then. But the way things are now, you just can't accept them. You know, I mean, there's, there's no way. I understand. I understand. When you were during World War II, I, I don't think I've even ever asked this question of the greatest generation. Do you remember a time during World War II that people were arguing about politics or discussing politics or criticizing the president or wanting to change in their government or anything like that? No, I, I don't. I definitely do not. Um, I don't recall any arguments or any questioning about who was the president or why or um, we might question some of his decisions but we figured well he knows what he's doing we don't so I mean it was just a different and the attitude of people was so different then too we weren't as selfish I don't think then I think that's a very good word to use selfish uh that's some wisdom coming through a, a, a very patriotic lady and the greatest generation. I think they are uh, the greatest generation that I've talked to. They, they sometimes wonder what they were fighting for to see what's going on these days. Uh, I know my generation, the Vietnam veteran generation, we are questioning a lot now that's going on. And uh, we had a very different war than your generation did, uh, but we are still hesitant to accept authority coming out of Washington, D.C. A lot of Americans are starting to feel that way. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that, but thoughts what, what, uh, about your activity during World War II. Uh, uh, I know you had four sons. Uh, mention your four sons to us. Um, yes, I did have four sons. Um, I lost two to cancer. And um, uh, I have two left, thank goodness. And one right here that I wouldn't be able to do this without. <laughs> and I've uh, uh, been very blessed in many ways. So um, I don't know what else you want to do. Okay, that, that's good. I know that one of your sons... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. he, lost, he lost one son to Agent Orange. Uh, you yeah. have sacrificed a lot for this country, and I want to thank you for that. Uh, folks, we're going to have to wrap this up. I am so proud to have had Betty Bishop as my guest today, and I want to thank Carol Kane for singing the Rosie River song to start the program. Uh, Miss Betty, thank you so much for joining me today. You had a fabulous story. Uh, God bless you, and you take care. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.